Good evening, everybody, and thank you very much for the invitation to come here and to lecture on the beautiful, very famous icon of Andrew Rubloff, uh, which has a theme, uh, the hospitality of Abraham or the Trinity. Two names are fitting to this icon. I apologize beforehand because I'm not very used to give conferences in English, so I will be sometimes a bit a prisoner of my text, and uh, I apologize for that. Uh, my talk has two big parts, as you can see in the handout I prepared for you. There's two big parts. The first part is the embedding of the icon of Rublev in an exegetic and iconographic tradition, so that you can situate it in the whole tradition of Christian art and also in the exegesis of the story of the hospitality of Abraham. The second part, which is the main part and the most important part, is the theological and spiritual reading of such an image, of this icon, which has very... Um, which is very uh, deep and very profound and which can surprise us, I think. So, let's start. The famous icon of Henry Rublev, known as the Philokalia, as the Philoxenia, or the hospitality of Abraham, or with a more common name, common known name, the Trinity, belonged originally to the monastery of the Holy Trinity at Sergei Posat, founded by Sergei of Radonezh in 1310. The icon was made for the iconostasis of the new church, built in stone, which replaced the original wooden church uh, Sergei of Radonezh built himself at the beginning of the monastery. We know very little about the life of the painter of this icon about Andrew Rublev. He was born around 1370 in the neighborhood of Pskov in the very north of Russia. He grew up during the liberation war against the Tatars, Central Asian tribe people that devastated the country. They were defeated at the end in the Battle of Kulikovo in 1380 by Dmitri Donskoy who was able to unify the territories with Moscow as center. Nevertheless, the monastery was devastated again in 1393, one year after the departure of St. Sergius, and another time in 1408. <clears throat> in 1392, Father Nikon became the second abbot of the Trinity Lavra. The young Andrew placed himself under his guidance and entered the monastery. We know almost nothing about his artistic and iconographic formation. We can suppose that he was in contact with Byzantine masters working in Russia, but also that he may have traveled to Constantinople and perhaps to Mistras in the very south of Greece, in the Peloponnesos, seen the evidence of influence of the Paleologian Renaissance in his work, which flourished during the last dynasty 
the Paleologians of Byzantine emperors. In that period, a new dynamism entered classical Byzantine style of the Macedonian school. Human sentiments gained more importance, and this became visible in the way traditional themes were treated. Also in the West, the same happened from the 12th century on. Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, Saint Francis of Assisi, and others inaugurated this special tone of tenderness in the Christian mind and influenced directly the Christian art. Rublev traveled probably around with a team of craftsmen and painters and worked in several, several important cathedrals. In 1405, together with Theophan Greg and Prokhor of Gorodets, he worked in the Annunciation Cathedral of the Moscow Kremlin, where he was painting the Feast Range. Several icons are conserved, uh, this icon of the Nativity, and also this icon of the Opdracht in the Temple, the Presentation in the temple. Yes, excuse me, I did not find the word. In 1408, he painted in the cathedral of the Dormition in Vladimir. Uh, from that, we have this huge icon of more than three meters high with the Deesis figures around it as the Virgin. Uh, St. John the Baptist, it was exposed not so long ago in Paris, it's three, I saw it, it's three meters high, this, this panel. The angels, Gabriel and Michael, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, uh, St. John the theologian, St. John the evangelist, and St. Andrew. That is what we have from it. And it's very lucky that we have it, but it's, it has been decovered in, in the beginning of the century in a, in a kind of uh, shop of wood. Uh, the panels ha have to be found again because they were lost. In 1410, oh yeah, also in Vladimir, this fresco of the Last Judgment is uh, one of the paintings of Rublov, which we know very sure. You see, it's typical style, very tender, very interiorized. And in 1410, he painted in the Cathedral of the Mother of God in Zvendigorod, from which we have this icon, very damaged, and also two icons which are, uh, belong to the deesis, the, the, the range of the, of the deesis, uh, with this famous icon of the angel of Michael, Michael, and this uh, icon of Saint Paul. That's all what is left from this icon of Stasis. But they are very famous and very beautiful. At the very end of his life, he was involved in the decoration of the new church of the monastery at Sergei Posat, and he painted the feast range, but also Deesis icons, uh, this Saint Paul. He painted there with a detail from it, which you see here and the famous icon of the Trinity, which took a place in the iconostasis of the monastery. 
Important to mention is that during the Stoglav Synod in 1451, the Synod Fathers proclaimed, proclaimed that Rublev's way to represent the Trinity was the only valuable and should be the model for all later representations. In 1988, Andriy Rublov was numbered among the saints. He was canonized at the occasion of the millennium of the Christianization of Russia, and the feast is celebrated on the 14th of July. This is quite important because since the beginning of the 20th century, after the icon was restored by Igor Grabar, in 1920, or something like that, it became famous and started a conquest and became known all over the world. Millions of times the icon was reproduced, found its place in sanctuaries, meditation rooms, western abbeys and monasteries, parishes and houses. And this fact was one of the main reasons of the canonization of the painter, St. Andrew Rublov canonized in 1988. What does the icon represent? The icon represent, represents the narrative of Genesis 18, 1-16, the hospitality of Abraham. You know the story. The text relates how three men presented themselves at Abraham's tent, erected near the oak of Mamre, while he was resting during the hottest hour of the day, and how Abraham offered them hospitality. Very soon in early Christianity, the narrative by some church fathers was interpreted as a prefiguration of the Trinity. Different elements sustained this reading of the text. First, the number three, three men visited Abraham, in early Christian minds, this, was, this number was spontaneously linked with the three persons of the Trinity. But there is also, in the narrative, in the scripture, in the narrative in the Bible, there is also the remarkable interchanging of the way the angels are addressed to or spoken of. Sometimes in the singular, as if they were one person, sometimes in the plural form. One time the text speaks about the visitors as he, in the singular, another time as they. And this interchanging of plural and singular gave an important reason for the allegoric or Trinitarian interpretation of the text. You have the text, uh, no, you have, do you have the text? I think yes. You have the text there, I will read it, then you will, will, will uh, remark it that it's, it's like that. Abraham had a vision of the Lord, singular. Two in the valley of Mamre, as he sat by his tent, by his tent door at noon. He looked up and saw three men. So he had a vision of the Lord and he saw three men standing near him. And at the sight he ran from his tent door to meet them, bowing down to earth, Lord, he said, as thou lovest me, do not pass thy servant by. Let me fetch a drop of water so that you can wash your feet and rest in the shade. 
I will bring a mouthful of food too, so that you can refresh yourselves before you go on further. Here is the plural. You see, he addresses as Lord, but they are three. And when they, they had agreed to what he proposed, Abraham hastened into the tent to find Sarah. Quick, he said, knead three measures of flour and make girdle cakes. Meanwhile, he ran to the by and brought in a calf, tender and well-fed, and gave it to a servant who made haste to cook it. Then he brought out butter and milk with the calf he had cooked for them, and let their meal ready, and stood there beside them in the shade of the trees. So, you, re you remark it, so there is a, an address uh, as Lord in the singular, but they are three. And this uh, interchanging of plural and singular was a very important reason for the Trinitian, Trinitarian reading. Uh, another aspect of this icon, which uh, points to, to, to the, the, the times of Jesus, uh, is that the three angels visiting Abraham and Sarah came to announce the imminent conception and birth of the child of the promise, Isaac, who is, from very old Christian times, in, uh, understood as a prefiguration of Christ, the incarnated Logos. In this picture of the catacombs of Rome, you see Abraham and you see Isaac carrying the wood on which he will be sacrificed. The offering of Abraham on the mountain of Moria. On which he will, and this links to Christ who was carrying his cross himself. So uh, Isaac, the child of the promise, is linked with Jesus, uh, is a kind of prefiguration of the incarnated Logos of Christ. Another important theme, which I will not omit, is the aspect of hospitality. In the letter to the Hebrews, the writer makes allusion to the narrative of Genesis and emphasizes the importance of the virtue of hospitality. I quote, How Abraham, not aware who his visitors, visitors were, offered hospitality to angels. So Abraham offered not knowing who the visitors were, offered hospitality to angels. Since then, the duty of hospitality hides a revealing force, clarified by Christ himself when he said, I was a stranger and you took me in. The icon of the hospitality of Abraham sustains this, in an, in, uh, sustains this important aspect the identification of Christ God with the stranger, with the pilgrim, especially in the icons where Abraham and Sarah are represented serving the three visitors. So when Abraham and Sarah are represented, you should rather read this icon, maybe in the first, in the first layer, as uh, the hospitality of Abraham with the whole context of the receiving angels, and at the end, receiving Christ himself. I was a stranger, and you took me in. He identifies himself with the stranger. 
Not all the exegetic schools of the early church were ready to interpret the narrative in an allegoric way as a prefiguration of the Holy Trinity. The position, for instance, of the school of Antioch, the exegetic school of Antioch, was very sober. The three men were, in their sight, angels, messengers of God. The Antiochians avoided far-stretching interpretations. St. John Chrysostom, in the 4th century, emphasized the relativity of the way Abraham addresses one of the three as Lord. And Theodoritus of Sir even indicates how it is a common thing to address an important person as Lord. Nevertheless, also for them, behind the angels hides the presence of the divine, as the message they deliver shows. The second exegesis of the story, of the narrative of, of the hospitality of Abraham, is typological or Christological. In the Old Testament, and this is very important, every theophany, every apparition of God, is in fact a Christophany. It is the incarnated Logos, Christ, the Son, that appears before the incarnation happened in time. So, as the text permits it, one of the messengers is set apart from the others. Only one of the angels was really God, Lord, as Abraham addressed him, and judge. And he alone was adored by Abraham. And this Lord from Lord was the Son of God, as St. Hilarius of Poitiers uh, says it. This is the opinion of a whole range of church fathers, as Tertullian, Justin the Martyr, Origen, and Hilarius of Poitiers. Cyrillus of Jerusalem considers the central angel as the prefiguration of the incarnated Logos, the incarnated Lord of, of Jesus Christ. And this view is supported by the context of Annunciation, which is also present in the story of Abraham, of the birth of the child of the promise. The laughing of Sarah, Sarah laughed at the Annunciation. She did not believe it, that it could happen, so she was laughing. But the church father interpreted interpret that laughing as a, as a symbolization as the, as the, of the jubilation of mankind at the birth of the Messiah. So, before Christ is born, in uh, linked to the, the figure of Isaac, uh, uh, Sarah is laughing, but in fact she is laughing and jubilating because in the, in the very, very far future the Messiah, the Messiah will appear. The third way of reading the text is as a clear prefiguration, the early revealing of the mystery of the Holy Trinity. The Church Father is very present. I, I read a text which I quoted in the handout from St. Ambrose of Milan, who uh, uh, has this interpretation. Abraham, ready to receive strangers, faithful towards God, devoted in ministering, quick in his service, saw the Trinity in type. He added religious duty, he adored, to hospitality, and he served. When beholding the tree, he worshipped one, 
Beholding the tree, he worshipped one, and preserving the distinction of the persons, yet addressed one Lord. He offered to tree the honour of his gift, while acknowledging one power. It was, not, it was not learning, but grace which spoke in him, and he believed better what he had not learned than we who have learned. We have learned about the mystery of the Trinity. Abraham did not know nothing about it, but he understood better than we who have learned. That's what ex uh, explained, is, is explained here. No one had falsified and, and, and so on. I, I, I don't continue. Uh, just you can read the text on yourself. So important is, uh, also, I quoted a very short text of St. Augustine. But since three men appeared, and no one of them is said to be greater than the rest, either in form or age or power, the three are quite identical. we will see this in the iconography, we should, why should we not here understand, as visibly intimated by the visible creature, the equality of the Trinity? and one and the same substance in three persons. You see, different ways of reading this text, and these different readings have also consequences in the way um, the, the narrative will be represented in icons. The different ways of exegesis of the narrative are reflected in the iconographic approach. You have always, as in exegesis first, the literal reading. So the different elements of the narrative, the concrete material elements of the narrative, are represented on the icon. But they, the, the icons of the, of the Trinity appear mostly mixed up in one and the same image. So the Christological and the Trinitarian interpretation are mixing, mixed up in one and the, the same uh, representation. Especially the Christological and the, Trinitin, and the Trinitarian interpretations are interwoven in the iconography. The factual story is always the basis. As in exegesis, the literal reading is the starting point. The most important elements of the narrative are always represented, and slowly on, during the evolution of tradition, they gain symbolical and mystical and even liturgical meanings, and that we will develop later. I have now uh, for you prepared a, a kind of uh, iconographic history of the icon. You see? Rublev painted in 1425, he painted the icon. There is an, a, a big uh, history of more than 1,000 years of evolution of that icon. And I will show the main parts because it's very important to understand Rublev. The first and oldest representation of the hospitality of Abraham we find in the catacombs of the Via Latina in Rome. You see, three men are coming. They, they are quite identical. They have what we call the isocephalia. It will, it, this means it are three, they have the three same faces, three same 
the face is all the same. And that is an element that will be kept until the end in the iconography of the Trinity. Three, the three faces are the same. I remark that the, 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 the central angel is a bit smaller than the others. He could represent the sun because he has a smaller stature than the other two and it is a common way in paleo-Christian art to represent Christ as a childish figure, the child of God, which is the incarnated son. So probably, also because the central figure is smaller than the two others, it points already that the central angel is Christ. You remark also on the bottom, the calf immolated by Abraham as meal for the three visitors. The calf is also a very important element. The next image we find in the Santa Maria Maggiore Basilica in Rome. Uh, there you have on the south wall a kind of Abraham cycle. And here you have two images. On the top, the first scene, you see the three men, Abraham who is greeting them, welcoming them. And you see the central angel uh, isolated from the two others because he figures in a, in a kind of mandorla. Uh, this is the Christological interpretation. So one angel is separated from the two others. Two others are kind of companions. In the bottom scene, you see the tree quite identical. No difference. No, of the, no one of the angels is separated from the others. You see the house of Sarah at the left. You see the oak of Mamre, the tree where the meeting happened. You see the table with the three uh, 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 breads of the three uh, uh, portions of meal that uh, she baked into bread, Sarah baked into bread, and you see the offering of the one calf, which reflects the, the, the text of St. Ambrose, who is talking about that, the three, uh, the three elements of, of the three breads and the one calf which is also playing on one and three, you see, on Trinity. I, will, I, I, pay, I want to fix your attention on the table, which in fact is a mensa. It's an old, a paleo-Christian altar. You see, the paleo-Christian altars were tables. And in the very early history, they were in, they were in wood. So here, uh, in, in the, you see, already this is an altar. This is not a table where people were eating around. This is an, an altar. Already the Eucharistic context is present in this image. This is Ravenna. The same elements are there. You see the house, you see the tree, you see the altar, you see the three breads, you see the one calf eh, offered by Abraham in a kind of plate uh, to, to, to the visitors. Uh, important is here that it is linked to another story of Abraham, the offering of Abraham, and on other walls, uh, here you have a detail, but on other walls you have this image, the offering of Abel and of Melchizedek. So what is important here in this image is that it is linked in other, with other scenes uh, which point to a Eucharistic context. You remember the, the, the Roman canon, the old prayer, which we 
to pray in the Eucharist, there the offering of Abel and Melchizedek is mentioned. So you find the, the, the link to the Eucharist also present in these very old images of the uh, hospitality of Abraham. Here you have Palermo, uh, which is important here. You see a small uh, distinction of the central angel. He has a red uh, nimbus, while, while the others have green. So it's isolated a little bit. Uh, the first thing, uh, um, important thing, is also the introduction of the chalice, which is the first time. The chalice... Uh, which will play also an important role. On the left side, you have the welcoming of Abraham of the three men, and then you have the meal. But the chalice and the isolation of the central angel. Then you have an whole, an whole group of, an, of, other, of another type of icons of the Trinity, of the hospitality of Abraham, which we call the Oriental type. This is the Codex Barbarini, it's a manuscript, and you see here, the, the table, that's the most important element, the table is in the shape of a U, of a U, hmm? which makes possible that the figures are sitting around and that there is a kind of conversation that is uh, starting up. There is a kind of re relation between the three. They are not sitting like that on a row and looking forward, but they are around a table. And this table is also the type of the altar in the Syrian tradition. Because this mosaic, here you see how the tables were in the form of a U. So the old Syrian altars had also that form. So also the Eucharistic links, link is present here. Uh, this kind of type we find uh, on different places. Here in Cappadocia, Here, the bronze doors of the cathedral of Suzdal in Russia. You see here the chalice with the head of the calf. The beautiful mosaic in the monastery of St. John on the Isle of Patmos, with in the center also the big chalice with the calf and the three breads. And you see also the central angel is identified as Christ, why? Because he, he wears the garments of Christ. In the iconography of Christ, Christ has always a purple uh, tunica and a, red, a, a blue toga. A blue uh, toga. So the identification is clear, you see, uh, because those garments, we, we can identify the central angel, but we cannot identify the two others. They, are, they have the same aspect. We cannot say this is the father or this is the son. They, rest, they remain in the atmosphere of companions, not really identified. Uh, the same table here in the San Marco in Venice, and look at the, the chalice with the dead calf. Eh? Very expressive, very, very strong expressed. And also this beautiful fresco by Theo van Greek in the church of Volotovo all that you form of the altar, of the table. But also the importance of the central angel. 
then because we have a tendency to uh, to find more to, to uh, emphasize more the identity of the three figures the identity here you see they have quite the same importance nevertheless the central angel is identified even by his name you see here Jesus Christ and you have, he has a, the, the, the nimbus with the cross but all the others have also but he as only one has no the others have also the gospel in their hands but nevertheless he is identified as a central angel but the two gain in importance and in differentiation on top of this is written Hagiatrias, which means the Holy Trinity, but you understand that there is a kind of ambiguity coming in the, in the, in the iconography, because only one is identified and the others not. So, if a real representation of the Trinity should identify the three, and not only one. There is a, this, this ambiguity remains a long time. Also in this icon of Novgorod, you see clearly the icon of Christ here, with the blue and the purple and the clavos. You see even the, the nimbus with, with the typical letters the, who indicate the icon of Christ. And you see Hagiatrias. This is going on, and then you have different, uh, different uh, trials uh, to, to, to make it more logic, here the three figures are completely identical. Completely identical. No difference at all. No identification of the first, of the three, of the other. They are completely identical. And then you have even the return to the very old fashion, a very old way of Ravenna and Santa Maria Maggiore to represent in, in this icon of Scott. They are sitting on a row looking forward. So, the, the dialogue is gone. This icon is very important. It's on the Fatopedi Monastery on Mount, on Mount Athos. And here you see um, the, the whole setting is liturgical. It's in a church that the thing is happening. So in a church they are sitting around the table and there is a kind of uh, relation that grows be between the three angels. Uh, this is the last before Rublev will appear. This is a manuscript, uh, a text written by John Cantacuzenos, who was first, in his first period of his life, was an emperor, an emperor of Byzantium. In a second period, he became a monk, a theologian who wrote a, a very, very treatises on theology. And on top, you have a min in the miniature, you have a representation of the Trinity, which I show in detail. Hmm? And here you have quite a dynamic, a dynamic way to represent the Trinity. Nevertheless, the central angel is identified by the cross in the nimbus. You see the chalice with the head of the, the calf, and you see the three figures, the other figures, who have the same importance, have the same strength of presence than the central one. Although the central is identified, the two others not. And then you have, uh, yes, this is one important thing I want, em I want to emphasize, because we will uh, talk on that later on, that in the center you have really the chalice with the head of the calf. 
And this is a very old traditional element. This is on Patmos. This is in the San Marco of Venice. And this is in the very early period in Ravenna. You see, the God is always present. So, in some interpretations, they say that there is not a cough here. But if you look at the tradition, it's impossible that it should be another thing than a cough. Because an iconographer works in a tradition. So, Rublev will never have, get it in his head to make something else than the tradition uh, is uh, giving him. When we look at the icon of Rublev, what did he... What, um, what are the, the elements he is keeping? All the, at the historical level, following the narrative of the visit, Rublev keeps the most traditional elements. The tent, the house of Abraham, at the, at the very uh, left corner. The oak of Mamre in the center. The mountain, which is the mountain uh, that Abraham went up uh, with one of the messengers to look, uh, to overlook Sodom and Gomorrah. It's also an element of the story. The meal, there is a meal represented, a very sober meal with just one chalice and one, and with a calf in the chalice. And the three men represented as angels and pilgrims with a staff. He is not withholding Sarah and Abraham, they are not represented. And on the table is just one chalice. All other attributes are omitted. That's all the new, new things, but very little ones, in fact. Some symbolic elements are also kept. First, what I told of the isokephalia, the same face of the three angels. They have all three the same face, the same expression. The central angel with the garments traditionally given to Christ. The blue, the purple, and the knavos. So, uh, we saw the whole tradition, so we can quite surely, 100% surely, identify the central angel in this icon with the sun. He keeps the square table, which was the altar, the altar in, in, in the Russian context where he lives. What does he emphasize in a special way? There is certainly an emphasis, a willing emphasis, on the conversation between the three angels. They do not look at the spectator, but an internal event is taking place. What, is, what does he emphasize also? The equality in strength and presence of the three angels combined with a very clear distinction between them. There's not identity, as we saw in the Benaki icon. Uh, there is uh, the same strength of each figure, but also distinction, which is very strongly emphasized. He makes a white table that will be, will be revealed also as very important. Then the careful disposition of house, tree, and mountain respecti respectively linked to the three figures that will also reveal, be very important. The, three, the equal strength of the three leads unavoidably to personal uh, identification and in a logic respect for the prayer of the Church. How do we pray to the Holy Trinity? Glory to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. 
if you see the icon function in a liturgical context, it's not possible to think it in another way or to, to turn around that, that rhythm of the, of the doxology. So, this is the first part of my conference. I will continue. I have still some, some moments of to continue. Um, uh, I wanted to show how this icon is not an isolated work of art, eh? as we can see, made, painted by a big artist, mm -hmm. but it's a monk living in a tradition, knowing the, the scripture, knowing the fathers, and, and painting in a tradition of iconography. But his profoundness and his artistic geniality has added those small things which gives to the icon the very depth which we will try to explain from now on. In the theology of the Trinity, in, especially in the Eastern theology of the Trinity, there are two levels, two levels which we call by two names the level of the theologia and the level of the oikonomia. The church fathers, when they used the term theologia, theology, understood something completely different than we nowadays. Theologians are those persons to whom is granted a mystical insight in the Godhead. Only three fathers of the church received the title of theologian. First, St. John the Evangelist, the most mystical apostle, received the title of theologian. St. John the Theologian. Then St. Gregory the Theologian. It's St. Gregory of Nazianzen, one of the big, the great church fathers of the 4th century, because of the depth of his five famous theological orations, and third, the Saint Simeon, the new theologian, because of the depth of his mystical experiences written down in his, in his uh, works. It is not possible for a man to know God. God is beyond everything. He is unspeakable, unknowable. When the fathers speak of the internal life of the Godhead, they do it with great reverence and in an apophatic way. It means by negative terms, saying rather what he is not than really uh, willing to define him. They praise the mystery, often by saying what God is not, rather than explaining God's mysterious being by rational means. Their speech of the fathers, when they speak of the Trinity, has a doxological quality. It's rather prayer than explanation, you see. They glorify the mystery of the triune God with sober words, allowing no profanation by an overthrown curiosity. That's the theological level. It's important to make that distinction. There is also the economic level, the oikonomia, as they call it. The economic level expresses the activity of God outward himself. The activity and operation towards creation and mankind. It treats about God insofar he makes himself known, insofar he makes a step forwards to humanity. 
Insofar, he wants to implicate mankind in his own life and give insight into it. This is what they call cataphatic theology and gives expression to God in positive wordings. We proclaim what he revealed. I had uh, prepared a text for you uh, of Pseudo Dionysius the Aeropagite, who, uh, when I read it, I will explain a little bit, you, you will feel those two levels of speaking. It's a very beautiful text. I like very much the writer also. He's a writer of the 5th century, end of the 5th century. Now, he says, as I have already said, we must not dare to apply words or conceptions to this hidden, transcendent God. We can use only what Scripture has disclosed. What, what is coming out of God's own will to make clear of himself. In the scriptures, the deity has benevolently, the, the, the word so beautiful, eh, has benevolently taught us that understanding and direct contemplation of itself is inaccessible to beings, since it actually surpasses being. Many scripture writers will tell you that the divinity is not only, and let the, the words are negative, eh? is not only invisible and incomprehensible, but also unsearchable and unscrutable. And yet, in the other hand, the good, God himself, is not absolutely incommunicable to everything. By itself, it generously reveals a firm, transcendent, being, granting enlightenment proportionate to each being. You see? That play under the, the hiddenness of God, but he decides from his own proper will, from out his goodness, and, uh, to make himself known. In the other text I, was, uh, I, I quote, this is why we must not dare to resort words or conceptions concerning that hidden divinity which transcends being, apart from what the sacred scriptures have divinely revealed, from what God himself has made known of himself. The first way of praising God, rooted in scripture and deeply tasted by the theologians, the mysticals, is the unity and the distinction in God. One and three. There's a simple name. God is one, three. But that's a whole mystery. That's a whole mystery. This is the first unspeakable mystery. It should not be explained, but celebrated. Therefore, the praise the Church gives to God is doxological. Glory to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the treatises on the Trinity also keep this accent of praise and are anxious to go too far in rational, rationalizing the mystery of God. God himself gave us no insight in how unity and distinction, one and three, go together in his internal life. It remains out of scope of humans. It is subject of praise rather than of discursive reasoning. The three-unions of God is confessed as a dark but sure truth. 
revealed to the church. One and three becomes the symbolical indication of God in his three unity, a mystery of inexpressible richness, dynamism and life. In the Godhead, unity, because he is one and three, that's the way we confess him, unity and diversity coincide. This is almost the opposite of our human experience. There, the distinction between people is source of disjunction, disharmony and separation, even amputation. It is difficult for humans to support what is other. Otherness scares men and he is inclined to withdraw from it or to remove it. In the Godhead, true distinction, the persons in whom God as God exists are really and radically other, different, coincides with unity. St. John says God is love. This is another way of expressing the same mystery. Only love is able to build unity out of difference. In God, the distinctions between the persons, and contrary to what happens among humans, is source and power of unity. And love is the unique and divine capacity to create unity out of diversity. Therefore we say that God is one and three. Because he is love. You see? I end up my first part in looking to the icon. How does Rublov express this mystery of unity and distinction? One and three. That hymn of praise the church offers to God during her ceremonies and in her prayer, daily prayer. The unity he presents... The unity is present, uh, he, he presents the three messengers in a circle. This is very important. You see, uh, a circle is the symbol of unity, of fullness and completeness, of indivisibility and divine perfection. You remark, the circle in fact is a bit too small, it should be a bit bigger, then you should uh, remark that also, this, this falls in the circle, and this falls in the circle, and the feet are completely in the circle. Only the left angel exceeds a little bit the circle. And this has to do with the Trinitarian theology of the East, where the Father is the source of the divinity. The source of the divinity. He gives the divinity to the Son and to the Spirit. Another element of unity is, as we already mentioned, the isokephalia. The same faces, which symbolize the one will and the one operation of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Though they are different, though they are radically different, they have the same will, the same operation. The blue color, which all the three angels have, which is common to the three angels, is also a sign to bind them in unity. And then the atmosphere of the whole icon of intense and perfect harmony which evokes realities as towardness, benevolence, mutual attention, 
and obedience unanimousness. The distinction is visible firstly in the three, the number three, they are three, but also in the firm affirmation of the difference in the colors. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are really different persons. They are, have different habits, different uh, garments. And they are seated in a fixed order, which in no way means a kind of subordination, of following up. Rather, the order emphasizes the life-giving distinction and otherness which blossoms in unity and mutual harmony. So, the second part, I already, I already had a, a first chapter of it, but now we are going to speak about the level of oikonomia, where there is much more to say about that, because the whole scripture is involved in that, the whole way uh, God is communicating with us is this domain. This level corresponds to God the coming one, to God who makes himself accessible, out of the depths of his own will, goodness and desire, he makes an opening for being known and to mutual relationship. Within the great council, the great council which took place from all eternity, the letter of the Ephesians is speaking of that, the great council, the Sacra Conversazione, ongoing in God since all eternity, the decision is made to create a world outside himself, a completely different world, not at all godly or divine, but subject to change and decay, material and transient. This world he will create. I think in the handout I quoted a small text of Maximus Confessor, which is also uh, always very concise in his wordings. He says, the Creator, when he willed, there's a mystery, when he willed, he, on another place he will say, we cannot know why he brought about uh, creation at a certain time. When he willed, he gave substance to and sent forth his eternally pre-existent knowledge of beings. So, from all eternity, creation was a kind of, uh, yes, present in him as a kind of plan, as a kind of uh, desire, as a kind of project. And when he willed, he decided to act according the vigorous and creative energy which is his own. And he brought creation uh, in, in time. The icon shows this heavenly conversation. You see, before the three figures were behind the table looking forward, but because of the influence of that table of the Syrian tradition, where from the first time the, the, the figures were uh, situated around the table, there comes a new, new kind of understanding, and now it's explored until the end by Rublev. The icon shows this heavenly conversation, the great council, in a symbolic way. Indeed, 
if you look at it, something is going on between the three angels. We clearly have, the, when we look at it, we have it clearly have the impression that the left angel, who symbolizes the father, has the initiative in the conversation. He opens the dialogue. And the other angels, together and in union with the Father, and from all eternity, and turning to him, approve what is proposed and express their readiness to take a share in the execution of the plan of salvation conceived in, in unanimity. This plan, from all eternity existing between the three, in a kind of, yeah, a kind of knowledge, let's say, mutual knowledge, is unfolded in time. The first phase of this plan is the creation of the universe, drawing it out of nothing into existence. By his word he created, says the scripture, and by his spirit he dynamized all he brought into existence. From the beginning, creation is a Trinitarian act, is decided in unanimity between the three uh, persons of the Trinity. The Son himself will work out the plan. He is what the Greek calls the autergon, um, autos and ergomai, the autergon. He will work out the plan of salvation. And the Spirit is the co-worker, the sun ergon. The Father at last will approve everything. He is the eudokon, the benevolent approver of the result of the conversation. He starts the great conversation and he closes it. But this happens out of time, in the eternal reciprocity of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The proper share of each of the three persons in the bringing about of the plan of the divine economy is visualized in a delicate way in the delicate way, Rublev posits the angels, give, give a position, give a place to the angels. Both of them, the, the Son and the Spirit, the, the middle angel and the left and the right angel, are directed towards the Father. It is clear that the whole composition and movement of the icon starts from the left angel and returns to him. His upright stature and the fact that he exceeds the circumscription of the hidden circle, and the inclination, the glance of the middle and the right angels towards him, give evidence hereof. You see, the angel is a bit uh, excited, exceeding the circle. We come now to a second element. The table. The table around which they are seated is at the same time the subject of their conversation. It is the starting point of a sharing of divine life with a different world. Creation is at the heart of the divine conversation and the table symbolizes creation. 
They sit around the table, and the table symbolizes quotation, is the subject of their conversation at the meantime. And you will see we are going to make a whole journey of, of, the, of, of creation towards the table. At the end, the creation becomes a table. The table has two main characteristics. It is square and it is wide. The table is square. This points to the difference which God installs by creating. Creation is not an extension of the Godhead, but is called into being as different from God. From old, the square form symbolizes the created world in antagonism with the circle which symbolizes the divine and uncreated world. You see, the table is square, the three figures form together a circle, and this is put in a kind of antagonism to indicate that God is not uh, a kind, uh, when he creates, is not extending himself in creation, but he makes something other, something different. And that is very, very important, because otherness is the, the bottom of love. If you love the one who loves you, it's nothing special. But if you love the other one, even the enemy, then love, what love really is, comes about. Then we see what love is. The table is also white. This quality points to the innate goodness of creation. Creation shares and manifests the goodness of the creator. Although in the Greek mentality, matter and wickedness were linked. You know that, the Neoplatonist even uh, put it, the, the origin of, of wickedness in matter. The church father have countered this, this position vehemently. Creation and matter are vehicles of God's goodness and beauty, of God's power and love. Nothing in creation is bad. The white table is symbol of the goodness of creation. Creation carries the imprint of God's beauty and love. In creating, God shares goodness and beauty with all that exists. In the whiteness of the table, and that maybe is new for you, in the whiteness of the table are also expressed, in, involved in fact, bringing in the, the, the Holy Scriptures. And then the Holy Scriptures are in fact the first exegesis by man of the hidden revelation present in history, in time, and in creation. The, this exegesis results, this understanding man has from creation, results in the words, the narratives, the prayers, and the prophecies of Holy Scripture. Man gives expression to the marks and traces of God he discovered and discerned within history and creation, and he lays them down, he, he, lays, he, he is laying them down in Scripture. And God himself approved the reading man has made. And he makes the human wording capable to express the hidden mystery in it. He approves the human discoveries and appropriates them as his word. Therefore, in the liturgy, 
Although the scriptures are product of human wording, we conclude their reading with word of God. You see, human wordings approved by God, taken up by God, because they are authentic findings of the traces which God has put, has laid down in creation. I have a text about that in the, in the handout. It's quite a complicated text, but I, 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 I surely want to, to read it together with you. It's about Maximus' confessor who waves together scripture and creation. Or, he says, one could say that the Logos, Logos is the word of Christ, is the, the, is, 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 uh, the word of God is Christ, in fact, becomes thick. By, in the incarnation, he becomes thick. Uh, uh, he becomes uh, consistent, let's say, in the sense that for our sake, let, the words are very important, for our sake, he ineffably concealed himself, God concealed himself for our sake in the logoi of beings, in the essence of beings, in the depth of beings. He concealed himself in the depth of all that exists and is obliquely signified in proportion to each visible thing, as if through certain letters. So the creation is a kind of scripture, is a kind of book. There are letters and sentences and, and stories which speak about God. It's a kind of, of book. And then he goes on, or he says, one could say that the Logos becomes thick, so by the incarnation, the word of God, Christ, becomes consistent, God becomes consistent, material, in the sense that for the sake of our thick minds, because for the sake of our thick minds, because otherwise we don't understand. He consented, that is the whole way out, the outgoing of God towards us, he consented to be both embodied in material creation and expressed through letters, syllables and sounds in the scriptures. So that, that's very beautiful, from all these, from creation and scripture, he might gradually gather those who follow him in, in creation and in scripture to himself, bringing us for his own sake into union with himself by contraction, by bringing us together to the same extent that he has for our sake expanded himself in creation and in scripture. That Mutuality, that reciprocity is very beautiful. It's very beautiful, you see? Scripture and, uh, scripture and uh, creation are holded together. We can conclude, the square table directed us in a first stratum to creation and in a second stratum to its logic extension into scripture. The whiteness we discovered as the symbol of the goodness and beauty of God as a secret message present in both of them, as his secret presence in the elements of creation and in the words and narratives of scripture. The condition and themes for the dialogue with man are displayed in these first phases of God's self-revelation. 
Nobody has expressed this in a more lapidarian and more beautiful way than St. Ephraim the Syrian, the text which you have a bit further. Who has ever sung the wonder and the miracle and sounded all together myriad of strings and mixed it into wisdom, the old and the new with the natural? The Old Testament and the New Testament and the nature of the creation are mixed together and formed together a huge instrument with myriad of strings and God is playing on it. And this gives a kind of tone, a tone that reveals something. What does this tone reveal? The image of the creator was hidden in them. It, the, the image sounds up in the tone. Upon them openly you portrayed him. From all of them appeared the Lord of all and the Son of the Lord of all. You see? Creation and scripture and nature. Old Testament, New Testament, or a kind of huge instrument. And God is touching it. And this gives him the whole reality wherein we live a kind of sound in, where, in which he is approaching us. Giving a trace to us to approach him. You see the hands, the blessing hands. Excuse me. You see the blessing hands. The goodness of creation is echoed by the threefold blessing of the three persons. And this points to Genesis, where creation is clearly clarified as good. So the blessing is linked to the God who says, this is good at each day of its coming about. The blessing is expression, expression of the divine approval. The created world is offered to man as an environment wherein the goodness and the blessing of God has to be discovered. It is like a vineyard, and the Lord did everything possible and gave it as a habitable world to mankind in order to guide and to attract him to, itself, to himself. But, now we come in the next stratum of the symbolism, the work of God's coming in love and truth does not end up here. What do we see at the center of the table? Or rather, what should we see there? What can we expect to see there? Normally, we should see there the upright posture of man. That's what should be there. Man, indeed, introduced within creation at the sixth and last day, was meant by God to be the culminating artifact. He was meant to be the intendant and the representative of God himself in the midst of time and matter. God what did he not with the what he did not with the rest of creation in creating man came down himself and modeled man by his own hands and made him alive by his own breath by this he gives a special mandate to man man should be the gatherer of creation and direct it into a unifying movement of praise and thanksgiving 
around and towards the Creator. He received the task to harmonize by putting God in the midst and to lead everything step by step into God's own atmosphere. He should reveal through his understanding his contemplative capacity and by the quality of his intercourse with circumstances and his use of matter and nature, he should reveal the hidden treasure lying in creation. By his proper constitution, symbolized in his upright stature, being in the middle between matter and spirit, he is meant to be the natural link between the material and the spiritual world, experiencing both dimensions in his own body and spiritual existence. Man should confirm creation in its deepest truth, in its natural tension towards God, as in Paul says in the letter to the Colossians, everything is created for God and towards God. In this task, man was hoped by God to engage himself by his free choice, to which God invited him by giving the commandment not to eat from the tree of knowledge. It was a kind of compulsion uh, uh, to make the, the, the liberty, the, the, the freedom of man uh, effective. That's, that's the reason why the commandment was given. He had no choice. If you will eat of this tree, you cannot survive. And in front of that commandment, he has to make a choice. And so his liberty was brought about. If after these considerations, we look at the icon, so after my consideration about what a man should be and what the place of a man should be in creation, in the middle of creation, upright standing, gathering creation, what do we see? We look at the icon and we do not find the upright posture of man. Instead, we find the chalice with the dead animal inside. The immolated calf offered by Abraham. And to make it very clear, as I emphasized it already, there is indeed a calf, and also in Rublov's chalice, there is a calf. There is a calf. We remember that, from the story of Genesis, after having eaten of the forbidden fruit, which is a symbol of man's turning towards himself and his primitive and egoistic needs of well-being and well-feeling, and points, the tree points also to the whole richness of creation, and how man directed it in the story of Genesis toward itself, and by doing this destroyed its beauty and its innocence. God clothed the first couple with animal skins as a sign of their regression by their proper choice into a life under the tyranny of their biological instincts, which man has in common with the beasts. 
It is common knowledge that the fathers of the church, in considering man's indulgence, understood it as a kind of bestialization of his nature. The fact that God clothes man with animal skins is a kind of handing over of man to his animal nature. This experience is largely expressed in a Christian art. For instance, in the Romanesque capital of a church, you see Adam and Eve really clothed with animal skins, very heavily clothed by Adam, as if they were animals. So the bestialization of our nature through the fall. But in the meantime, we discover in the gesture of God clothing the lost first parents something of his loving condescendence and mercifulness towards mankind. Indeed, God gave not up man. Instead, he pursued him. He took care, looking for new occasions to attract him. The animal represents the biological part of man. The old man, as scriptures calls it, that has to be put to death in order to open up a new way of existence, in order to change it like a garment that we strip out for another way of life, for the robe of glory that we were wearing originally in the paradise and that we had lost. The chalice, the fact that the dead animal, the immolated animal, is let down. You, you understand now the link, eh? our bestialization through the fall, and <coughs> that dead animal is, is the, same, the same, same thing. So, because if you eat of this tree, you cannot stay alive, you die. That's what happens here. It's a dead animal, that's the, 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 the man of the fall in, in, the, in the bottom of the chalice. You see? The fact that the dead animal, the immolated animal, is let down in a chalice and is set in the middle of the table leads us quite naturally to the idea of sacrifice and offering. In the middle of the table, a chalice, leads us to an atmosphere of sacrifice and offering. Indeed, the animal did not just die. It was immolated by Abraham, as a gift for the divine visitors. That's important, you see? There's something different. The, the animal was not just dying, but it was immolated as a gift for the divine visitors. The chalice itself adds something to the message. Besides the connotation of sacrifice, the chalice gives support. It is the symbol of God's hand stretched out underneath all the changing circumstances and attitudes of human life. Even sinfulness cannot make us fall out of the outstretched hand of God. Even after the fall, God did not abandon man. The whole amount of prayers and prophecies confirmed this belief that was alive even in the deepest abysses of human existence. I show this magnificent Romanesque capital where you see the man of the fall. He's really falling down. He, he's falling down. He tumbles down. And here you see a mysterious figure who is taking him up. You see? 
the hand, the outstretched hand of God underneath all what we men do or, 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 or forget to do. Never in scripture this is this, this feeling, this, this, uh, this uh, conscience of being um, safe in the hand of God, um, even if we are, if we are a fallen creature, anyway, we are safe in the hand of God, is expressed in the beautiful psalm, uh, uh, De Profundis, Psalm 130. I think I, I have it written down also in the... Out of the depths, you, you, you should look, you should look, if it's possible, excuse me, you should look, if it's possible, to the chalice and to the dead animal and identify in a certain sense our human broken life with that animal, but resting in the chalice as in the hand of God. And out of those depths of our fallen nature, we cry, we cry. So in this psalm is expressed the cry out of the depths, but also the confidence, the confidence that God uh, will, will not let us fall. Out of the depths I cry to thee, O Lord. Master, listen to my voice. Let but thy ears be attentive to the voice that calls on thee for pardon. If thou, Lord, will keep record of our iniquities, Master, who has strength to bear it? Ah, but with thee there is forgiveness. By the, be, thy name ever, be thy name ever revered. I wait for the Lord. For his word of promise my soul waits. Patient my soul waits as ever watchman that looked for the day. Patient as watchman at dawn. For the Lord Israel waits. The Lord with whom there is mercy. With whom is abundant power to ransom. He is that will ransom Israel from all his iniquities. You see that play of praying out of the depths. But also that atmosphere of confidence. In that sense, the chalice is also linked to prayer. The chalice is also linked to prayer. And we, when we lift up our hands in prayer, we ourselves take on the form of a chalice. Because true prayer has always the, the quality of a sacrifice. And now we are able to qualify the chalice with the immolated animal as an image of offering. We offer our fallen nature to God, to the visitors. This we actually do when we immolate the animal in us by, firstly, struggling actively and freely against the passions, trying to fulfill the commandments actively and with all our strength. Also we do this, secondly, by accepting freely the purification to which the different circumstances of life give us the occasion, when they overcome us involuntarily. But also, thirdly, and that may be the most important point, by entrusting our human weakness, our incapacity and sinfulness to the mercifulness of God, all this by embedding our efforts, struggle and pain in prayer and hopeful supplication.
I quote, I've quoted a very beautiful text, a bit long, but anyway, I will read it out completely by Saint Isaac the Syrian, who is a big, uh, a very important spiritual figure of the 7th century in the Syrian tradition, but he is known all over the Christian world, and he is, he is, very, he is a very important writer. And he has a text here where he expresses how human weakness is a kind, gives us a kind of opportunity to encounter God. And that's what I, I link it with prayer, link it with prayer. Bless it, and then, then you should think again. I know what's the, it's, oh yes, uh, this uh, I, sh I, I shall explain first. It's a very beautiful Romanesque capital. What do we see here? We see a man, a man with a positive intention, because he is a very beautiful man. He has a very beautiful face, a shining face, so he's, in, he's on a good path. Hmm? Other uh, persons which are not on a good path are very bearded and, and, and different. But here is a very beautiful man, he's on a good path. What is he doing? He carries an animal on his back. He is carrying his own condition humaine his own weakness, his own reality. He is carrying it. He takes it on himself. He is not putting it away. It's something other. Oh, I did not do that. Oh, it's not mine. No, it's his. And he carries it on his shoulder. And it is difficult because his bent knee shows the, the effort that it costs. But you see at the same time that at the tail of the animal a, a, a flower is coming. So, which means that this attitude in life is bringing something positive about, accepting our own weakness. And that's where the text of St. Isaac uh, speaks about. Blessed is the man who knows his own weakness, because this knowledge becomes to him the foundation, the root, and the beginning of goodness. But no one can perceive his own infirmity if he is not allowed to be tempted a little, either by things that oppress his body or his soul. And again, whenever he looks over the multitude of his devisings and his wakefulness, his abstinence, he is a monk, eh? so they are mon uh, monastic uh, virtues which he is summing up, his abstinence, the sheltering and the hedging about his soul by which he hopes to find assurance for her, and he sees that he has not obtained it. Or, again, if his heart has no calm because of his fear and tremblings, then at, then at that moment let him understand that this fear of his heart shows and reflects that he is altogether in need of some other help. For the heart testifies inwardly and reflects the lack of something by the fear that strikes and arrests within it. And because of this, it is, it is confounded, since it is not able to abide in a state of surety. For God's help, it is said, is the help that saves. When a man knows that he is in need of divine help, he makes many prayers. Here prayer comes, you see, prayer from the, from the depths. He makes many prayers. And the more he multiplies them, his heart is humbled. He becomes what he really is. For there is no man who will not be humbled 
when he is making supplication and entreaty. A heart that is broken and humbled, God will not despise. So, Psalm 51. Therefore, as long as the heart is not humbled, it cannot cease from wandering. For humility collects the heart. But when a man becomes humble, at once mercy encycles him. There is a changing point, you see. We are the dead animal in the chalice, but out of the chalice the prayer is going on up. We have accepted our reality. We are a weak person. We are praying to God, hoping for God, not giving up confidence. And then, suddenly, slowly, at once, mercy encycles him. And his heart is aware of divine help. Because it finds a certain power and assurance moving in itself. And when a man perceives the coming of divine help, and that is this which aids him, then at once his heart is filled with faith. And, the un and he understands from this that prayer is the refuge of help, a source of salvation, a treasury of assurance, a haven that rescues from the tempest, a light to those in darkness, a staff of the infirm, a shelter in time of temptations. And to speak simply, the entire multitude of these good things is found to have its entrance through prayer. Through prayer and humility. All these good things, he concludes, are born to a man from the recognition of his own weakness. You see, that's what you see in the image. The recognition and the acceptance of your own image. And this becomes the strength hidden in weakness, where St. Paul speaks of it. The strength hidden in <clears throat> What happens now? We heard mercy is coming. At this moment, the symbolism of the icon leads us to in another atmosphere, into a liturgical sacramental atmosphere. We have offered our lives. Indeed, all this happens, all this, what I explained in the text and in the images, happens when, during the Eucharistic celebration, we bring the gifts of bread and wine to the altar. In these gifts, the, the, immolate, the immolated animal is a gift, but also bread and wine are the gifts we bring, up, we bring to the altar. In these gifts, we enclose Firstly, all our efforts, all the pain, the pain, different difficulties of our lives, our failures and weaknesses, but also our prayerful hope on God's mercy. And the chalice, with its weak content, is the image of the confident sinner relying on the mercifulness of God. At that moment... <coughs> The gift of our poor lives and efforts is taken over by Christ. And in the ritual of the liturgy, it is showed, because in the procession with the gifts, we bring bread and wine, but we put them not ourselves on the altar. It is the, it is the priest, which is the icon of Christ in the liturgy, which takes the gifts and puts them on the altar. So Christ completes our efforts and our sacrifice. <clears throat> and he carries 
as St. John the Baptist indicates, the, the Epicarius, the sins of the world. It takes them over at that moment. It is he, together with the whole of humanity, who lays himself, together with the whole of humanity, in the sacrificial cup on the altar, and as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The chalice in Orthodox iconography often showed up in icons with Christ in it, not anymore with the dead animal, but now there is a kind of transubstantiation which has taken pl place in, in, in the symbolism of the icon, you see, and even further, in the beautiful image of the Amnos, which is painted in the apsis of the, of the Orthodox churches, you see the chalice with the, the, the little Jesus in it. Hmm? You see, it's nice to have that, that connection if we remain with the icon of Rubloff and do not connect it with the whole tradition and the whole expression of the things we do not understand, really. And even this image, where Christ is laying on the altar. He is offering himself, but is offering all our humanity, which we were not able to offer really, but he is completing this offering. The gift of our poor lives at the end of the liturgical celebration returns to us in the communion, enriched by the self-emptying of the Lord as food and drink for eternity. You see? What we give comes back, enriched by the gift of the Lord. At this moment, we can look back and consider the great council where everything began, where the decision was made to create and to speak after the fall words of consolation and prophecies of hope in the scriptures, and give us words to pray and to entreat the Lord of mercy. At the end, the ultimate decision was made to come down towards us in the person of the Son and take up the fate of humanity until the end, partaking in our death for the remission of sins. The heavenly decision embraces the whole economia from the creation until the cross in order to open up eternal well-being in God for the whole of mankind. The Holy Spirit was sent in order to open our eyes for the light that shone forth in him who was not held in respect, who was the lowest of mankind, but nevertheless more beautiful than man, and was God and with God, as St. Maximus quotes. Indeed, the table of creation is cumulating in the Eucharistic altar which is the sacrament of the table, which, at, at it, at its, at, which in, in, uh, in continues in the, uh, the, the table of the altar, is itself sacrament of another table, of the table of the heavenly banquet. We see clearly the three divine persons waiting for somebody. The front side of the table is unoccupied. It is ready to receive the one since all eternity waited for, the healed, restored, and renewed man who joined, joined his life to that of Christ, who believed in him, and who with him, and with the help and grace of the Holy Spirit, made his life, made of his life, of his weak 
life, a reciprocal sacrifice of love. The whole icon emphasizes this openness, this quality of invitation, the inversion of the perspective, especially apparent in the footstools, underscores this openness. We are invited to enter and to take place from the where we were invited to the very beginning, from the very beginning, and to join the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to celebrate together the eternal banquet with them. Indeed, the target of God is man. And the reason why God created is man in order to make shine forth the divine light in a community of love between God and man. Man can now approach the altar, which is, we remember, the condensation, the top of the whole of creation. The place man is invited to take is the place of the celebrant. Why do we know that? Because of that little hole here in the altar, which is the, the, place, to, the, 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 the place where the relics are, are introduced in the altar. And that is on the side of the celebrant. As I can show in that very beautiful antique altar, you see there is a hole, and here is the place where the relics were posed, and that's the place where the celebrant is, was, was standing. So at that place man is invited. Now man, at the end of the story, man is confirmed in his vocation that he lost. Eh? You remember my whole story, how he lost his vocation? To, to be the link between, to be the link, um, the, his vocation to link the whole created world as a gift of praise and thanksgiving with God and introducing it by his regained freedom into the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He realize, realizes forever his priestly vocation. He becomes the celebrant of a cosmic liturgy, the proestos, the priest, of a cosmic sacrifice of thanksgiving to the giver of all. But this reality is not really represented in the icon. Is the reality which lies which lies in the future as a promise, but is still alive in the hidden depths of the hearts of the true believers. I conclude. The upper part, the upper register of the icon. As a kind of conclusion and recapitulation, we find in the upper register of the icon three elements, symbols which in a certain sense resume what we discovered until now. Above the right angel, we see the, we see the mountain. It refers to the mountain Abraham went up to overlook the condemned cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the story. But larger than that, the mountain is a symbol of the way of man towards God. To climb the mountain is a metaphor of the journey humans make through life towards their destination in the hate, towards God in heaven. The Holy Spirit, the right angel, as shows the blessing, 
the, the, the position of his blessing hand, deeply involved into, in the reality of creation, is sent into the world. He is the revealed, is revealed as the helper, the comforter and the sanctifier. It is he who accompanies men through their lives, guiding and supporting them during their journey to the top, during their pilgrimage on earth to their ultimate destination. So the, the guider of life through, which leads us to the top of the mountain. At that moment, arrived at the top of the mountain, the only possible activity, um, man experiences the impossibility, the impossibility to go further. At the top of the mountain, a kind of emptiness shows up. A kind of abyss shows up before him. And he is compelled to abandon all activities. He cannot go further. Left to his fate and to his hope and to his love. This is the moment to sacrifice all his life and to abide in faith. At that moment, the only possible activity is to wait in darkness. Entering a kind of death. An experience that the fathers link to the cross, to the abandonment of Christ dying on Golgotha. That's why the moment, the, the mountain, inclines towards the tree, ends up in the tree. And the tree, initially the oak of Mamre, becomes here the symbol of the cross. And we find it right above the angel of the middle, who is identified as the sun, the outworker of the plan of salvation on the cross. But also the tree is bent to the left. Having, exten having extended himself on the cross, a vocal with the offering of ourselves on the altar, and having completed the way through life with the help of the Holy Spirit, waiting in hope and love, at the time God provides, men will be granted access to the house of the Father, where there is room for many. He will welcome men in due time. And we notice how the house is opening up towards the right, as an image of welcoming the human pilgrim who completed his journey and is allowed into the house of the Father. There the festal meal is ready. There, men and God celebrate the ultimate feast of the victory of love. All men, together with the whole of creation, are assembled at the table of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And at the end of the story, we find back the white table where we are invited as a kind of image of heaven. I thank you for your attention. Amen.